I have been monitoring the chip shortage very carefully. I've gone to the grocery store on a regular basis and have carefully noted that for a while there, there just weren't any chips. I mean, there was a critical shortage. The shelves were partially empty. Ooh, they were they've started chips. to fill up. They've started up to fill up with chips again. So I think the chip shortage is drawing to that's, an end. That's um, probably it. You're right. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else, Else filled the wall up with our English dead. Welcome tried back. To say it. I did. You tried to say it instead of me. Yeah, I looked up and I didn't see your attention, so I started to jump in, and then you did it. So, there. So, we've got video conferencing going. We're both sitting in our houses with microphones and a nice studio set up and connecting to the studio in Temple which is an interesting concept. This was not possible just a few years ago. I remember early on when we were doing the, the radio program and we were asked to go to do our program live on site at a couple of occasions and they brought us these headsets. And Jeff Elderbaldi, my dad, is here wearing a headset and it sounds crystal clear. There's just a little bit of a change in the microphone where it, those broadcasts 20 years ago sounded like we were the captain on the airplane trying to tell you about the economy. Well, just simply look out the right window of the airplane and you will find the economy of the United States. So the fact that we're able to do this with the technology that we have today is pretty awesome. What were you going to say? Actually, if you practice a little more on that, you could qualify for the job of making announcements at the airport. Yeah. Immediately, or you will be thrown in jail. Fined by the FAA and, and uh, children sent off into uh, concentration camp. Unless you... Yes. That guy follows me to the bus station, too. He's, he seems to be at all the major announcement centers telling us horrible consequences if we don't do the thing that we can't understand. Yes. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about this hour not just about uh microphone differences but also things like uh what's going on in the solar industry i'm sure you've got a bunch of stuff on the list to do what what are you uh what are you looking at oh the federal deficit narrowing the fed owns 24 percent of the united states treasuries Good bunch stuff of things like about retirees that's mm -hmm. i wanted to we're talking about the labor market what's going on in the labor market which is generating a big piece of our supply chain issue, which is generating a big piece of our inflation, which is generating a big piece of our unhappiness. Right. So let me hit solar, because this is also microeconomic. We, this is like something people can benefit from. And then you, mm -hmm. that one, because that's also, it's kind of in the same vein of what can you do specifically to help yourself. Solar is... Yeah, um, when people talk about it being green and all of that, I kind of discount all that and put it off to the side. I'm looking at cost. In the last several years, the cost for solar has finally hit break-even, presuming you have good credit almost immediately. Are you aware of this? Mm -hmm. um, solar panels, presuming you have good solar coverage, the sun can reach where you're putting the solar panels, in, uh, and you have good credit so that you can take a loan out for that entire amount at the beginning. When I do the calculations on that, the typical savings on the loan or, or the payment on the loan is typically around half the payment for electricity. 
without all the taxes and so on. So we've hit break even plus a little bit better, presuming you have cash on hand or you have a low interest rate loan. If you don't have good credit, it's not a good time to buy solar yet. That will be coming. It won't be that long away. Prices will continue to go down. Why do I say that? Because there's a lot of companies competing in it right now. Uh, just a few years ago, there were only a few. There's a lot more. The manufacturing facilities are coming online with newer technology, and people are interested. The more people that are interested in something, particularly at the beginning of an industry, the more companies there will be. So you've got installation companies and you've got manufacturing companies. The difficulty here is not taking the first bid and just going with it. Price around a little bit and then talk to the other solar panel folks and say, hey, I just talked to somebody else and they said they could get me this. Negotiation is on the table still. There's a lot of demand for solar, so you may not get the negotiation you want right away, but if, you, if you're patient, you can get a better price than the first bid, almost always, even from the people that give you the first bid. Just keep that in mind. Um, this is one of those things that if you want to get off the grid, if you don't, if you just like saving money on electricity, it, it looks like we're finally to a point in solar where it's cheaper while the sun's shining, at least, presuming you have good sun, it's cheaper to install uh, than what you're going to pay for it long, long term. Uh, it's just, that's, that's fantastic. And well, I've, I've talked about that being the case in electric vehicles, that during the same time period, electric vehicle, the battery technology and lack of maintenance due to fewer parts with explosions in them in an electric vehicle has finally passed the point where it's less expensive than uh, an internal combustion automobile. And 10 years ago, I did a whole spiel on don't get the electric vehicles yet unless you just want it for ego because it's going to cost you more by far. Well, it's not the case anymore. It's actually equivalent to model. I mean, most of these are still luxury brands, so you've got to compare luxury to luxury, but they tend to be less expensive not in every case, but in a lot of cases. So do your research there too. This is a cusp moment. This is a change in technology. All the major manufacturers of automobiles are saying right now that they expect the majority of manufactured vehicles in five years to be electric. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect we're going to see some similarity in solar. Say that 10 times fast. There's a very sibilant sound there. Um, similarities in solar being that the price is coming down. A lot of people are going to be getting them. This is a much longer term thing, but kind of a nice little watch the dominoes lined up and you can follow it to this point. Automobile insurance is about to change. It's going to change drastically. Uh, I, I was asked yesterday by a client what I was going to be doing when my daughter comes of age. Well, when my daughter comes of age to drive, I have a very, very low degree of likelihood that her car will even have a steering wheel. We're talking more than a decade out. So insurance for her is going to be really insurance for the computer that's driving the car, which is going to be much cheaper because computers don't get in as many accidents as people do. Let's not get too enthusiastic about that because going 10 years from now, presuming that I'm still going, 
more than a there decade. There will still I'm be saying. a few of us dinosaurs driving yep. around out there. That's correct. And wobbling down the streets in their, I just got rid of mine, but in their three quarter ton pickup, daring a little electric car to get in their way. Right. Just, so there'll probably still be automobile accidents. There's, there probably still will be. But one of the things that we're seeing in the numbers now is that the self-driving cars are really good at avoiding other people's bad driving. Not when I'm chasing them. No, yeah. If you're chasing them, it might be a little <laughs> different. It's the computer's like, what is he doing? I'm just going to pull up. Oh, you hit me when I pulled over. <laughs> well, the Tesla incident proved that if you go at really high speed and you control the vehicle and you aim it at a tree. You can hit that tree. You can hit the tree and blow up the car and kill yourself. Right. So it's still possible to do this, but eventually the steering wheel is going to be gone. General Motors, I talked about this last week, just applied for its its final license, its fifth license in the state of California to do rideshare or taxi services with this van that doesn't have a steering wheel. They've been doing it in individual locations and cities for quite some time. They're finally at the point where they're getting this last license done. And then anywhere in California, you might just be able to push a button and have a computer car show up and you get in and you go wherever you're going. When you listen to this program in the future, you're going to be like, well, of course, that's the way all driving is. Well, this is a cusp moment. Those of you listening in the future, we don't know that yet. We will know it. You know it already. For us, it's still a bit of a shock. Computers driving. Mm. Uh, It's coming, though. And that means that if you're investing in automobile insurance companies and think that they have no end in sight, they may have to change a bit in the future. I suspect they can maintain profitability and insurance will still be something that's needed, but it may not have anywhere near the same kind of demand or price that it has today. There's a parallel here with a hundred years ago. There's a lot of parallels going on with a hundred years ago. It was in the 1920s that the majority of transportation in the United States moved to internal combustion engines from horses. And a lot of ramifications came out of that. For one thing, if you drive into East Texas or anywhere east of I-35 and you see these small towns with the mansions that are falling down, it changed our economy fundamentally. It made us far more productive. It made us uh, far more, uh, it changed everything. And obviously the 1920s were, were the roaring 20s. It also led to the displacement of an awful lot of farm workers, which contributed to the Great Depression. A lot of interesting things going on. It's happening again. Right now, we have this critical shortage of truck drivers. Well, that's kind of like there was a critical shortage of Teamsters 100 years ago. A lot of these truck drivers still consider themselves Teamsters because well, they're in the unions. But they actually, actually had, had horses, teams of horses. They had Horses or oxen or mules or something they were driving. And this is a skilled but, job, by the way. If you've ever tried to be on a wagon with more than one team of horses, one team is hard. When you've got multiple teams, it's just as hard as backing up a tractor trailer into a slip. It is difficult to drive. Particularly backwards. Yes. Backwards is and even harder. And they used to do that. There's a parallel here that I haven't researched thoroughly because the data is just hard to find from the 1920s, but I've got enough anecdotal evidence that I'll present it. There were a large number of conglomerates in the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century. What are conglomerates? They are corporate entities that own a lot of different companies that that are doing a lot of different things, but they're all called one name. The Vanderbilts were the leading example of that. They own railroads and shipping and lots of other things. Mm Mm-hmm. It was in the 1920s. Rockefellers, the same right. concept. They had lots of 
companies. It's in the in the early 1920s, those companies started to break up into specialty companies. Which is what Jake was talking about last hour, but it's important to recognize General Electric, the which uh, recently, a few years ago, was the largest company in the world, isn't it anymore, by the way? Neither is Exxon. Um, is breaking into three companies. And Jake was talking about the fact that Johnson & Johnson is breaking into two companies. Uh, Toshiba is breaking into, what, three companies? I think. Yeah. I to think specialize so. in those areas. We're doing an interesting uh, rerun of the 1920s in just almost every aspect of it I can find, including having a pandemic at the beginning of it. Yeah, I mean, this is it's a technological revolution, just like the Industrial Revolution, only this is another Industrial Revolution with less people. Right. And the change is digital, and the change is sh shown in the, the fact that we, a shortage of chips causes a lot of things to stop working because we need chips for almost everything now. We're moving into a new age in the, in the 2020s. They're going to be a lot better, but it's going to cause a lot of disruptions. And we've been talking about that and you can follow that out and see there's some potential dangers out there, but the potential gains are far greater. And that is what's going on in the United States. And it's important to recognize that this is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing. It is increasing the strength of the United States. But there's another thing going on parallel. And I don't want to monitor. I can go on for a while on this. I'm not going to. So let's we make it a discussion. China is going the other way. Yes, absolutely. China, China, and, and there's, goodness, we could go on for two hours about this. No, more than the that. Change, more, the, more, changes more. In, the changes in China are so profound right now that they're hard to measure. China is becoming anti-entrepreneurial. It is beating itself up in so many ways. It is setting up a separate, we, you know, early in last hour, we got a question what is the accounting practice in China? Is it different from the United States? You better believe it. There's, we don't not, know what really, it is. there's not really a practice. It's each. It's kind of decided by the person doing the books. And so we've got China is headed off on its own standards, doing its own thing, wanting to become its own closed circuit world to the point that there's a new economist, which is really in Financial Times, both had articles. Companies are realizing they need to set up totally separate operations separate entities in China using separate accounting principles and not taking money from the West. China is, there's an experiment going on and it'll be something I think that's read about in history books for maybe centuries to come. China is headed off in one direction. The rest of the developed world, Europe and the United States are headed off in a different direction. And it will be really, it's an interesting experiment to see whether centralized controlled government where the governor or the premier or whoever gives instructions from on high or the crazy decentralized chaos that is represented by the United States dominates the world. My bet is on the chaos in the United States. Right. Major change coming up. I'd like to draw a parallel here. Conglomerates are breaking up in the United States and there's a really good article in the Wall Street Journal about why they don't work. General Electric was the 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 big proponent of management is everything. Yeah. And if we just do the right kind of management, we can manage any kind of company and we can manage them all together and they will be wonderful working together and we can make lots of money. And that myth seemed to hold together for a while. It actually seemed to work as long as the supply chains had some synergy. 
Well, the, the issue is management was from on high yes. by definition, right. rather than a bunch of separate companies run separately and do their own thing. And they don't have a single boss telling them, here's, we're all going to do this. And what we are discovering in the United States and have discovered over the last decade, particularly, actually, it's been going on for a little longer than that. IT&T, IT&T used to be the second largest company in the world. And ITT, basically, nobody's heard of anymore. Right. It was a conglomerate. Gulf and Western was a conglomerate. And they practiced a philosophy that says major decision making from on high can control a bunch of companies and make us more profitable. And it didn't. It blew up in their faces. As a matter of fact, General Electric, just at, at its height, was making the vast majority of its money from finance. Right. General Electric, the manufacturing company, was making the vast majority of its money from GE credit until the financial right. crisis of 2008 and 9 blew it up. Right. So how they did that, just quick. They gave loans to dealerships and loans to people that were buying their cars, and that was profitable. And then they started managing their own 401k, and they started making new mutual funds, and they started doing things that were very different than the rest of General Electric. And it became very profitable until the global financial crisis hit in 2007, and it was not. Just like Johnson & Johnson, a consumer products company that is old and stogy and has good dividends and grows very slowly but very consistently, recently was making most of its profit from high-margin drugs. That doesn't sound like old-school Johnson & Johnson at all. As a result, their breakup is important, and there's a couple of reasons breakup is important. Theoretically, the price of the drug related company will jump upward and investors will make a lot of money. The other thing is watch medical companies that make drugs over the next, if, if you long-term watch yeah. it over the next five or six years, Congress is going to put the whammy on them. Oh, and if you don't believe happen. it, it's going to happen. Just if you happen to be diabetic or know somebody that's diabetic, ask them how much insulin costs. Now recognize that it costs about $5. What is, what is it? A vial? What do you buy that insulin in? What measurements do you know? Uh, it's, do you know? It's in a vial, yeah. And they're, they're, uh, it's about $5 per dose or something like that. And some cases, are, how much are they charging now? Do you know the price on that? It's in the Hundreds. thousands. Uh, uh, yeah, this is something, I've got a type 1 diabetic in the family, and it's on my insurance. And we have a high deductible, and that deductible gets met very easily every <laughs> year. It's expensive. And, and just going to throw this in there. This is the complicated factor. There are no patents still held on this insulin. And so the insulin is, it's the technology for it is amazing. It is human DNA. It is derived, it's human derived insulin that depending on what company made it was either derived from E. coli or from yeast in a two-part process that come, com it's called recombinatory DNA. And when it comes together, you have this insulin molecule that is exactly the right one for the human body, which is amazing. Well, those patents have expired because they started this multiple decades ago. Well, the largest generic drug manufacturer in the world, which is based in, in India, said, oh, patents are expired. Let's get this thing going. Insulin is a moneymaker. Let's do it. And what they've discovered is that this is gardening. It's gardening with the most fickle of plants. 
the yeast or the E. coli die if a temperature shift is as much as a quarter of a percent at the wrong time. So if you imagine a brewery for beer, where they've got to control the temperature of the beer at the different stages, and the beer is making its own temperature through chemical reactions, it's like that, only a lot more finicky. So the generic company said, we would have to spend billions of dollars, even though the technology is patent-free, to get the process right to do this. That doesn't mean that the three companies that are making insulin can charge as much as they want forever. That sounds like a a monopoly in three parts. What I wanted to point out is when price gouging is taking place in the United States economy, and a lot of people are affected by it, it's not a matter of if it's going to get fixed. It will get fixed, and it will blow up in their faces. Yeah. Anyway, the point I wanted to make is these company breakups are going on because we realize the centralized control of different companies that are doing different things is inefficient, and you can hide it through financial uh, manipulation for quite a while, as General Electric did. But when it finally catches up, it blows things up. China is moving towards conglomerate control by the state. Of almost everything. And the United States is moving in the opposite direction, decentralizing control into separate companies. This is one of those things, again, a major, major shift in philosophy. The Chinese adopted our philosophy and they went from being a bunch of oxen pulling plows and very, very backward because they decentralized and allowed free enterprise to take over and run their country for a while. And now that they've become prosperous, they're moving back to the centralized control from the emperor. And this will be something to watch academically and just interestingly in general over the next decade to watch how this works out. But there's right. a fundamental shift going on in the world today, and you can actually see it in the news if you care to look at the news and think about it in that term. And it's it's a huge change, and I think we're going to come out on top. Right. These, these changes that we're talking about here are far more permanent than who gets elected as president next, you know, next election cycle, far more permanent. These are things that it's a transition to a new way of existing going on in China and the United States right now. And it has very little on our part to do with who's president on their part. It has almost everything to do with who's in charge. Total change of subject. Okay. Okay. No segue. People are always asking me, what are the threats to the market? What is the threat to my portfolio? And you have to keep those in mind and recognize that in most cases, those threats are transitory, temporary, and but they happen and they can affect the value of an investment portfolio rather rapidly. So that's why we keep we tell people to keep good reserves and keep good backup plans for when the market crashes. Haven't heard much about it. I don't know how much you've read about it, Jake, but it certainly hasn't made the local papers. Russia is building up a huge concentration of armed forces on Ukraine's border. At the same time, Belarus is doing it on Poland's border. And and they are very much allies, Belarus and Russia. The Chinese have built up a tremendous concentration of forces across from Taiwan. Do I think war is imminent? Probably not. But I want to point out, when things like this happen, recognize that sooner or later, 
This would be the third time, by the way, that Russia has moved great numbers of troops to the border, and we put diplomatic pressures on Russia, and they backed off the last two times. They may not do it this time. That would just buckle your seatbelts and say, remember, we've talked about this. The thing we're worried about, inflation, uh, supply chain, what else are we worried about? But the pandemic. <laughs> pandemic, all the stuff we're worried about. That will not bite us. What we're worried about never bites us. And there's a story that I tell a lot. I may have said it on the radio recently. It's worth saying about the man, the man who saw a snake in the path and he decided to kill the snake. So he reached down and picked up a stick to kill the snake with. And it turned out that the snake that was in his path wasn't a snake. It was a stick. However, the stick he picked up to kill the snake with, as it turned out, was a snake and it bit him and killed it. Boy, is there a lot of truth in that story. But be aware that these things are out there. The unexpected is there. It can happen at any time. Have your reserves in position and recognize that highly speculative investments won't do very well under these circumstances. But being well diversified, being reasonably conservative in doing so, being aware of the threat psychologically is really, really important to your portfolio. I know this sounds like a completely different subject. We're talking about China, and I was thinking about the fact that they've had this buildup and are pushing, and what would, several people have asked me recently, what would, could China actually go over the line and invade Taiwan? Yeah, the moment they think we won't do anything about it. They'll do it. They'll do it. And the moment they think they can get away with it, they'll do it. And it is so important to them, they might be willing to wreck their economy to do it. So I'll give you an example of that. This is one of the things that uh, in my ongoing Chinese research, uh, if you can even call it that, it's, it's gathering data, but it's from lots of anecdotal sources. There was a kind of a, a Weibo video that was posted and moved around about a panic buying episode in Taiwan, food buying at the grocery store. And the reality was that it wasn't that, that but the, this was put on by the CCP. This is, they, they made the video and they said, hey, make sure you have enough food on hand to the Chinese people and make sure you have enough food on hand. And, uh, and the, at the same time that they're doing this, there are in the state-owned media articles popping up like how to buy a house in Taiwan province once Taiwan province uh has a real estate for available. So like it's going to happen and here's how to buy land and a house in Taiwan when Taiwan, they always call it Taiwan province, uh, when Taiwan province is available for real estate purchases. And people are expecting to do it at any point. But what's interesting is the comments down below. Again, state-owned uh, newspapers control the comments. So it's not like the United States where anybody comments and they're like, oh man, that was, that was ignorant or whatever. All the posts that remain up have been reviewed by censorship and are giving the right idea to whatever the article is. And they're talking about bombing Taiwan and after they bulldozed what remains. And it's an expectation with 100% confident belief that China will invade Taiwan at any moment in China. They have prepped the populace. The propaganda has been out. They're ready to do it if they don't think we'll stop them. So that goes back to what you were, you were just saying, that this is so deeply held. It's just an, it's a, a foregone conclusion that Taiwan province will be in China. 
Um, and in the middle of that, the reason why this be was part of my research is that there were panic buying that took place across certain areas of China that saw that video. Because the CCP showed the Taiwanese panic buying food and saying they're short of food there and they're stocking up for our invasion, when reality is that that panic buying wasn't panic buying, it's those people had just been given stimulus checks by Taiwan the first time Taiwan did this. And so they were going out and buying all kinds of stuff. It was more like a Black Friday thing than a panic buying we don't have enough food thing. But the CCP then flipped that around to say, look, Taiwan's getting ready for us to invade. Make sure you have enough food on hand. Go ahead. And then there was panic buying in China. <laughs> We've got a shortage of labor. We have 10, we have 1. I think 1.25 or one, something like that jobs available per person unemployed in the United States today, which is one of the highest ratios we've ever seen. We've got like uh, 11 million openings for 10 million unemployed. And this is the, the problem comes down to uh, the workforce has shrunk. A lot of people have left the workforce and we're trying to find out who, the matter of fact, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal headline, where did the workers go? A big piece of that is people who are over 65. That's right. Who prior to the pandemic were continuing to work. And that was a trend in the United States. More and more people who were 65 didn't retire. They kept working. That trend has reversed itself to the point where um, a pretty good-sized chunk of those people, about 3 million people is the one estimate that I read, have retired who previously were not retired, who previously said, we don't intend to retire, and they quit because of the pandemic. There's a whole lot of reasons that they're citing that they quit. Among them is the increased stress of working in the pandemic, wearing masks, distancing, uh, and... Uh, they just being scared of getting sick. So we're seeing the shrinkage in the workforce. And this is an important thing to note that's going on in the United States, which is one of the reasons we need more legal immigration. The second thing I wanted to talk about is far more profound if you're retired, you're retiring, or you're thinking about retiring or whatever. There's an old rule of thumb that I've, in my 40 years or so of doing this, heard over and over and over and over again, the 60-40 portfolio is standard. 60% in equities, 40% in bonds, you're, you're good to go. That's, that's the true. old rule, yeah. Ain't true anymore, folks. Let me give you another example of why it's not true. Let's just say you have 40% of your portfolio in bonds, and I'm going to be very optimistic for bonds as interest rates rise. Your return on those bonds very optimistically might be 2% a year. I think it'll be less personally, but it might be 2% a year. That's very optimistic. That means you get eight-tenths of 1% added to your portfolio by all your bonds on, over the long term. So let's just say stocks, and I'm not predicting the return in the stock market, folks, but over the really, really, really long period of time, stocks in general return about 7% a year, historically. So let's just say stocks return 7% a year, which is, again, based on what we've seen the last couple of years, pretty conservative, but that's probably pretty close to reality. The 60% of your portfolio that stocks would get you 4.2% a year because you only got 60% of your portfolio in there. You wind up with a 4.28% rate of return in your portfolio over the long term with a 60-40 portfolio based on the assumptions, which I think are optimistic I just offered you. Now, let's just say that inflation runs over 2% during that period. Your real return is 2.28%. By the time you pay your taxes, 
you have a real return in the portfolio of about 1%. If at that point you're taking out 4% a year and you've got a real return of your portfolio of 1%, I, you don't have to be a mathematical genius to figure out that ain't going to work. So if something is fundamental, I've read several articles that says the an 80-20 portfolio is the new 60-40 portfolio. Other articles that say you should go to alternate investments. I don't like alts. I think they're dangerous. If you're in alts, God bless you. Uh, alts are generally illegal, not illegal, illiquid should be illegal. <laughs> illiquid investments that say they're worth a certain amount of money, but nobody knows until you try to sell them and they're very hard to sell. And when you, all, my experience is when alts finally get sold, they aren't worth but a fraction of what they were listed as. So there's a lot of dangers there. And it's one of the things to just generally be aware of the old, the old 60-40 rule with a 4% withdrawal adjusted every year for inflation. Every indicator that we've got out there says it's a good way to go broke slowly and sometimes not so slowly. It's a fundamental change that's gone on in the market, and it really boils down to something very simple. Over the last half century or so, bonds have had a much higher interest rate than they have today, and the interest rate has been falling, which meant bonds had a better, far better return. And bond returns are very predictable because they mature at a certain date and they have a certain interest rate on them. And on the date, we know exactly how much money we're going to get back. We know exactly how much money we're going to get every month or every year from the bond. So you can predict the return on bonds with amazing, over the long term, with an amazing degree of accuracy. And 2%, let me tell you folks, 2% means you're very risk, you're very risk tolerant and you've got a bunch of really good long-term bonds which most people don't have at this point because they tend to go to junk. So there's a fundamental change in the assumptions about investments that's going on out there right now. And I don't think it's making, it's certainly not making the headlines, but if you're retired or thinking about retiring and you're looking at your portfolio and you say, well, the old 60, 40 portfolio worked for my dad. It'll work for me. No, probably won't. And it's a fundamental change in what we're doing. Jake. I'm totally in with what you've just said that, Anytime someone brings up a rule of thumb, I have to, I have to say, wait a minute, that's a one-size-fits-all. Uh, any one-size-fits-all is going to have people it doesn't fit. That's just that's the reality of the world. I mean, what is the, and the, the, the source of that term, by the way, the rule of thumb, there's a couple of different versions. One is how thick a, a rod should be before you beat your wife with it. Um, that, there's people that say, this is the biblical verse, reference. I preferred the brewer's version of it, which is a master brewer was uh, trained enough to stick their thumb into the vat of mash to see if the temperature was correct to add the yeast. And so they would check with their thumb. And, you, and by the way, that, that's been tested by these master brewers over the years, and they could go within one degree to the right temperature. So anytime somebody says a rule of thumb, this is always the way it is, and that when you retire, you should have fill in the blank, they're trying to make you conform to a standard rather than make something work for what you're trying to accomplish. Every portfolio needs to have a plan. What's it trying to do? And then if, I mean, you were just saying this, says 60-40, if you just run numbers on that, it doesn't work. Uh, it's, it, is, it is a good way to go broke slowly. So designing a portfolio around who you are, it isn't a knee-jerk, this is how many bonds and how many stocks. It's much more of a collaboration with the person that's giving you advice to say, all right, what do we need to have in the engine of my portfolio to make it work? It's no longer just two things. 
It's not just two rough ratios. It's what needs to be working at what time when other things aren't working. I realize that that sounds obtuse and vague. There's a lot of different things that you can put in a portfolio. And as you said, you've mentioned alternatives. So let me give an example. The Yale Endowment um, during the global financial crisis in the Great Recession um, was lauded as the way things should be. And why didn't the rest, why didn't Wall Street act like this? Because the Yale Endowment looked like it was growing all through the time period when everything else was falling apart. And the answer is because they had a lot of, we put some quotes around this, alternative investments in the Yale Endowment. They owned a lot of timberland, land with trees on it that was growing. Those trees would get cut down at some point and turn into lumber or paper or all the things that wood gets turned into. The thing is that there's not a big market out there for millions of acres of timberland. So how do you price it? Normally when you price something, if you've got a house you're trying to sell, you have an appraiser come out and they say, well, this is what another house like it sold for near here. It's kind of hard to find another millions of acres tract of timberland that sold recently. So the way they did it at the endowment and a lot of other places that do alternative investments is they marked the price that they bought it to and did an assumed depreciation rate, which meant that they had growth in there no matter what. During a period when everybody else was seeing depreciation or complete uh, lack of growth, shrinkage in their portfolio, the Yale endowment looked like it was growing. But it was an arbitrary price set with a percentage rate on it that continued up it didn't have any purchases happening. Uh, it, when you said it's illiquid, how do, you, how do you find a buyer for millions of acres of timberland? It is not an easy task. It takes years and years to find someone to come in and buy that. Or you have to split it up and the cost of selling it goes way up because you got to replat everything. You got to figure out what's, what the buyers are looking for. Alternative investments are called alternative because they're hard to value. And by the way, that timberland, much of it was in Brazil. Yeah. And when they finally did try to get the money, they found out that it was worth about 10 cents on the dollar that they'd been estimating. Right. So the, and, the manager for the Yale Endowment had already gone over to PIMCO, but it followed him. And, and, and so his reputation is not quite as glowing as it used to be. Yeah, but he's still, he left PIMCO and he's still, when he pronounces things, it makes headlines that are this great investor. Right. Alternate investments are scary. They really are. And they, they, they tend not to work out well. So just be, it used to be that what we now call alternate investments were investments that the Securities and Exchange Commission would only allow to be used by, quote, sophisticated, end quote, investors. And sophisticated investors are people who could invest in something like that and lose all of it and not feel the pain. But we haven't updated those rules very much. So now the Many investors who are anything but fabulously wealthy can invest in alternate in alternate or alts, as they're called, and think they're going to do just fine. And that's one of the things that indicates that there's a problem coming up down the road. Anyway, enough of that. Yes. If you would like to talk to us off the air for specific advice rather than educational contents, we actually give advice to people of high net worth. We manage portfolios for them. And if you would like to talk to us, we have voicemail waiting locally during the weekend, real live people during the week at 254-947-1111. Or you can get that same line toll free, presuming you have a landline. 
at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can read our newsletter and sign up for it. You can look at uh, or listen to recordings of our radio program going back lots of years. You can also go find those on the podcast. You can also contact us through the, the forum there or email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, thanks for listening to The Personal Wealth Coach.